Welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. We are continuing to tell the story of the Dyadache, and if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, now might be a good time to go back and do that. Today we're focused on Antigonus and his travels chasing down Eumenes, as well as the goings-on in the Greek peninsula. Maps and images from this episode can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. And if you have any questions, please send them to almostforgottenpodcast at gmail, or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot, or leave a comment on the website. And please do go to iTunes, even if you don't listen to the show that way, to rate and review it. This is Season 2, Episode 4, The Dyadache, All Against Antigonus, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Last episode, we saw the death of Antipater blow up the alliance between Europe and Asia once he made Polyperchon his successor. Antipater's son, Cassander, allied with Antigonus and then Ptolemy, and eventually took the Peloponnese before taking Macedon, killing Olympias, and chasing Polyperchon to the fringes of the Greek mainland. Olympias had killed Alexander's brother, King Philip Arhidaeus, along with his wife, Eurydice. Alexander IV remained in Pella, under the care of Cassander. But the biggest prize had gone to Antigonus, who had to chase Eumenes halfway to India before finally killing him. As he returned to the west, he was now in charge of most of the old Persian Empire, with most of the money, too. He had the troops and the power to reunite Alexander's empire under his own rule if he wanted to, and it was beginning to look like he wanted to. When he returned to Babylon, he was greeted as a king by Seleucus. Of our main characters, we've seen the deaths of Perdiccas and Eumenes, and there will still be plenty of action from Antigonus and Ptolemy. But Seleucus we've mentioned only briefly, and as the last of our main characters, it's time we get introduced. He was another contemporary of Alexander, born maybe two years earlier than the Basileus. Seleucus was also Macedonian royalty, from a city called Europos. His father Antiochus was probably one of Philip II's generals, and Seleucus, like his contemporaries, served as a page to Philip, growing up in Pella. He accompanied Alexander across the Hellespont into Asia, and was likely present at his most famous battles. Sources conflict, but at some point he became the commander of the Silver Shields, although if it was before India, they were just the hypaspistae, the shield-bearers, because Alexander hadn't dipped their equipment in silver yet. Chances are it was before India, though, because by the time Alexander reached Bactria, Seleucus had some amount of respect. He married Apama there. Apama was a Sogdian princess, the daughter of a warlord who had resisted Alexander and was killed by his wife, who then sued for peace. Apama would bear Seleucus a son and an eventual successor, Antiochus I. In a shocking twist for royal marriages of the time, Seleucus may have truly cared for Apama. After Alexander and his crew returned from India, he arranged for a massive marriage ceremony where he had his leading officers marry noble Persian women. It was meant as a real and symbolic union of Macedon and Persia, part of Alexander's vision to create a more unified empire 
without as many stark cultural differences. Most of the officers immediately divorced their Persian wives as soon as Alexander died, but Seleucus is the only one we know of who did not. At the partition of Babylon in 323, he was given the role of commander of the companion cavalry. Rather than what Eumenes had been given by Alexander, command of a companion cavalry unit, Seleucus got what had been Perdiccas's role, command of all the companion cavalry units, with other commanders under him. It was essentially the second highest role in the military. He was a supporter of Perdiccas during the partition and stayed with him throughout his campaigns until the disaster along the Nile. There, no doubt with some prodding by Ptolemy, he, Python, and Antigenes went into Perdiccas's tent and killed him, ending what is referred to as the First War of the Diadochi. At the partition of Triparadesis, he was given the satrapy of Babylon. It wasn't the same military role he'd had before, but he'd still have troops, and this time he'd have a lot of resources to draw upon. He then worked with Antigonus to track down and finish off Eumenes, and he seemed an ally of the one-eyed general. When Antigonus arrived in Babylon in 315, Seleucus threw a banquet and greeted Antigonus as if he were a king. But things quickly turned sour. According to Diodorus, Quote, when Antigonus, however, demanded an accounting for the revenues, Seleucus answered that he was not bound to undergo a public investigation of his administration of this country, which the Macedonians had given him in recognition of his services rendered while Alexander was alive, unquote. Seleucus resisted, bristling at being treated as a subordinate, while Antigonus was neither the king nor the king's regent, and Babylon was Seleucus's territory. But he remembered what had just happened to Python, and he also remembered that Perdiccas's request to go over Antigonus's own books in Anatolia is what sent him fleeing to Antipater in Greece. So he grabbed 50 cavalry officers and fled to Egypt, where he was welcomed by Ptolemy. Diodorus says Antigonus was relieved at the turn of events because, upon fleeing, Seleucus surrendered his satrapy, and because he wouldn't have to kill his friend. Now, we barely mentioned Ptolemy last episode, but he had been busy. After declining the regency and not taking charge of Perdiccas's army, which had come to kill him, he worked to shore up his own regime. For one thing, he began writing a history of Alexander's conquest, one that unfortunately does not survive today, but lives on through other ancient works which use it as a primary source. In the summer of 320 BC, Ptolemy looked to expand his empire east, into what was an autonomous province under the Achaemenid Empire known as Judah. He conquered the city of Jerusalem easily, surprising the defenders on the Sabbath when they refused to fight even in self-defense. The interpretation of this rule was actually changed a few centuries later when a man named Judah Maccabee helped lead a revolt in the region against one of the Hellenistic successor states. His rebellion is still celebrated today during the holiday of Hanukkah. Back to 320 BC, Ptolemy had no such issues, and he forced the relocation of many of the Jews to Alexandria. Like Babylon before it under Cyrus the Great, Alexandria became a center of Jewish learning and interfaith interaction. Ptolemy, though, was probably not looking to take all of Asia himself. Rather, he was looking for a buffer between Egypt and Asia, and while the other Diadochi were fighting each other over control over the main part of the empire, he took advantage. 
He also brought much of the famed Phoenician navy under his control, something that would serve him very well in the future. When Seleucus came to him, bearing the news that Antigonus was trying to make himself master of all of the Macedonian Empire, Ptolemy wrote to Cassander and Lysimachus in Europe, asking for their support in restoring Seleucus to Babylon. They agreed, and in 315 BC, their representatives met to hash out a more formal agreement, but no official alliance was reached. Antigonus took the initiative and worked to keep his rivals occupied. His navy couldn't yet compare to Ptolemy's, but he still attempted to drive him out of Cyprus unsuccessfully, and he worked to build up his fleet so that it could compete. He marched into Palestine and retook the cities there. Ptolemy's relatively small force didn't stick around to defend it, but they did bring the Phoenician navy back home with them. Antigonus also reached out to Polypercon and titled him General of the Peloponnese in an effort to keep his former ally Cassander preoccupied. He sent him money to raise mercenaries as well, and he began a propaganda war, convicting Cassander of treason in absentia and promising democracies to all Greek city-states in his empire. Ptolemy responded with a similar proclamation for his own Greek city-states. Promises of democracy are nice, but Cassander responded with force and reinvaded the southern Greek peninsula. He retook most of the region and got Polypercon's son Alexander to come over to his side. He eventually went back to Macedon, leaving Alexander in charge before the central Greek city-states rose up, dividing his territory in half before young Alexander was assassinated in 314 BC. Towards the end of 315 and early 314 BC, Antigonus had taken all the cities of the Levant, including Tyre, which he had laid siege to, and then turned north. Maybe it was the lesson of Perdiccas, or maybe because he thought of Anatolia as the heart of his territory, considering he lived there for over a decade as satrap, But rather than try Egypt first, he figured he'd start his next offensive in Anatolia. He left his son Demetrius in charge of making sure Ptolemy didn't retake Phoenicia before heading up to a region called Caria. Caria was the southwestern corner of Anatolia, a wealthy province overlooking the Aegean Sea that included important cities like Halicarnassus and Miletus. After subduing Caria, Antigonus planned to cross the Hellespont and bring Europe into his empire, or regency, or generalship, whatever you want to call it, he was on his way. It took some time, but by 313 BC, Antigonus had taken it, lost it again briefly, and then retaken it. He headed up towards the Hellespont and, in an effort to get Lysimachus distracted, worked to get the northern Thracian and Scythian tribes to rise up against him. We've sort of forgotten about Lysimachus because he wasn't really involved in the wars very much due to all his subduing in Thrace. He had a reputation of being a brilliant general, and he was able to take out the barbarians and Antigonus' own forces that were sent to help. By the end of 313, Antigonus had sent his own allies into the Peloponnese and defeated many of Cassander's forces there. As an interesting aside... As always with these independent city-states, not all changed sides at once, and some held out for years. Athens was still for Cassander, and a woman named Cratesipolis was able to keep some of the forces intact in another city. She was the widow of Alexander, Polypercon's son. According to Diodorus, 
She, quote, was most highly esteemed by the soldiers for her acts of kindness, for it was her habit to aid those who were in misfortune and to assist many of those who were without resources. She possessed, too, skill in practical matters and more daring than one would expect in a woman. Indeed, when the people of Sicyon scorned her because of her husband's death and assembled under arms in an effort to gain their freedom, she drew up her forces against them and defeated them with great slaughter, but arrested and crucified about thirty. When she had a firm hold on the city, she governed the Sicyonians, maintaining many soldiers who were ready for any emergency." Unquote. Unfortunately, we don't hear much more about this fascinating woman in our extant sources. Despite this, Antigonus had secured most of southern Greece and worked to cross the bulk of his forces into Europe. He sailed his ships up to the Hellespont, but, unable to turn that city of Byzantium to his side, decided to wait until after the winter to make the dangerous crossing with Lysimachus's forces watching. Antigonus didn't get to invade in the spring of 312, though, because his generals in Greece were squabbling. One went rogue for a bit and was eventually brought back in, but it cost him time. And that stopped him from bringing his forces together in a massive invasions from both directions, the Hellespont and the Peloponnese, at least for the time being. That's because while this was going on, Ptolemy had concentrated his efforts on a reinvasion of the Phoenician coastline, starting with the first city up from Egypt, Gaza, There, Ptolemy and Seleucus marched with a force of over 20,000 to battle with Antigonus' son, Demetrius. They outnumbered Demetrius' infantry by nearly 50%, but he had a slightly larger cavalry force, and he had elephants. Originally, Ptolemy and Seleucus lined up most of their cavalry on the left, which played perfectly into Demetrius' strategy. He wanted to slam into their right flank with a massive cavalry attack. But as the battle started, they saw this coming and moved the bulk of their horsemen to the right and went themselves to lead them. They also deployed caltrops and spikes in front of their lines to take on the elephants. The battle began with a stalemate between the cavalry forces. Then the elephants' charge was quickly subdued. Demetrius' plan was foiled. He just didn't have enough infantry to keep up once they countered his elephant and cavalry attack, and he ended up retreating. 8,000 troops, mostly phalanx, nearly half his force, were captured. This was the majority of his infantry, but he did retreat with most of the cavalry. Ptolemy tried to go further north to pursue and got as far as today's southern Lebanon, but Demetrius did a good job of pulling up the garrisons and the treasury and fled to what is northern Lebanon today. Antigonus, needing to tend to his own territory, arranged a truce with the European Diatoche, Cassander and Lysimachus, before turning around and heading south. Ptolemy saw Antigonus coming and, having completed his aims in preventing him from invading Europe, withdrew back to Egypt, abandoning Gaza and the other cities he took. But before he did that, he sent Seleucus off with a contingent of a thousand soldiers. The satrap of Babylon appointed by Antigonus had died in the Battle of Gaza. Seleucus, who was popular there, went to take his old city back. He raised more forces on his journey through Antigonid territory, was welcomed back, and quickly retook the city. We know the exact date of his return, 
at least the Babylonian date, because that's when he started his dynastic calendar. It was the first of Nisan, which was the first week in April, 311 BC. With everyone back home in their cozy palaces, the Diatoki decided to take a breather. They arranged a peace treaty in 311, and most everything went back to the way it was. Ptolemy kept Egypt, but gave up Gaza and everything up the coast from there. Cassander was named protector of Alexander IV and general of Europe. Lysimachus kept Thrace, and Antigonus was still the general of Asia. Pretty good for Antigonus, confirmed as the lord of all of Asia by the others. I do find it a little bit ironic that Perdiccas had made the mistake of heading to Egypt first while Ptolemy wasn't on the attack. Now Antigonus, in a similar position, went to Europe first but had to abandon that invasion because Ptolemy won a big victory at Gaza. If Antigonus and all his forces were at Gaza, he might have defeated Ptolemy and Seleucus. And now there was a little thorn in his side, sitting in Babylon. Antigonus would have to deal with Seleucus, who was growing his own power base. A few thousand troops in Babylon wouldn't have kept him alive for long, but he was a crafty one, this Seleucus. Some of Antigonus's loyal allied satraps went to take out Seleucus, but he surprised their significantly larger force at night, hiding in the marshes of the Tigris River, ambushing and capturing them. As usual, the defeated troops then came over to the victor's side, and he quickly took the territories that were now defenseless, Ecbatana and Susa. These cities were the capitals of Media and Susiana, respectively, and with that, Seleucus was in possession of most of today's Iraq and western and central Iran, with no one of any real power to his east. Antigonus's thorn in his side had turned into a real pain in his side. Next, Antigonus sent Demetrius to take Babylon while Seleucus was campaigning further east, and he did so probably in late 311. The commanding general in Babylon abandoned the city and took to the countryside to mount a guerrilla war. Demetrius left a garrison there and returned to Syria. But Seleucid partisans harried them to the point that they ran low on supplies, and Seleucus quickly retook his capital. In the summer of 310, Antigonus returned, leading a massive invasion force himself, to teach Seleucus a lesson. We don't have many surviving details of the conflict, but it seems Antigonus ravaged the countryside west of the Tigris, and maybe took Babylon at some point, without actually fighting Seleucus directly. The next year, though, in 309 BC, the two Diatoki did meet in battle. The day was indecisive, and the thought was that the battle would resume the next morning, but Seleucus had a trick up his sleeve. As the armies returned to their camps to eat and rest for the next day's battle, Seleucus told his men to stay armed and armored and sleep in formation. They woke up and attacked too quickly for Antigonus's forces to respond sufficiently. The sources are pretty quiet on the battle. We don't know if Seleucus captured all of Antigonus's forces, killed them, or if most escaped, but this seemed to end the conflict. Antigonus certainly survived the battle and headed back west. He was now close to 70 years old and probably was beginning to think about retiring. Maybe he realized that he wasn't going to retake Alexander's empire. Or maybe he was just out of troops and needed some time to build up his military. 
But he basically left Seleucus alone at this point, which gave Seleucus the opportunity to turn eastward. With his own territories blocking any potential relief force, he began to take most of the rest of the eastern satrapies, eventually working his way to the Indus Valley, where he met up with Chandragupta Maurya. But that's a few years down the road. At some point around the Antigonid-Seleucid War over Babylon, Cassander decided it was time to do away with any pretense of a monarchy. He had Alexander IV and his mother, Roxanne, killed by poisoning. We don't know when exactly, but he had them shoved off into some corner on a sort of house arrest for years, before eventually just, whoops, looks like they're dead now. He gave them proper burials, something which, in the Macedonian culture, emphasized his legitimacy. And with that, the Argiad dynasty of Philip II and Alexander the Great, which traced their history back to 800 BC, had conquered the tenacious city-states of Greece before destroying Persia, the world's superpower, ceased to be. There were no true heirs remaining. The dynasty was dead, and the Diadochi could go on their merry way ruling their own territories without feigning regency. Except... Except there was one loose end to this idea. With Cassander still reeling from Antigonus's forces beating him up in the Peloponnese, the peace treaty gave him a reprieve from an invasion from Asia. However, Polyperchon was still hanging out in Greece, although he had essentially been quiet for a half a decade. He decided, after the death of Alexander IV, 309 BC was the time to bring over Heracles, who was living in Pergamum in Western Asia Minor. Who was Heracles, you ask? Why, he was the illegitimate son of Alexander the Great, brought forward as a potential heir back at the partition of Babylon before the idea was laughed away. Polyperchon garnered some support in Greece before marching into southern Macedonia to make war with Cassander again. But Cassander offered the general, now over 70 years old, a bribe that included a pardon and restoration of his own territory, and this did the trick. At some point around this time, Cassander also gained territory in southern Greece when a general named Ptolemaeus, who had been crucial in taking the Peloponnesian cities for Antigonus, but was then subsequently marginalized by him, was disgruntled enough to hand the region over. Heracles and his mother Barsine were killed, and nobody from the family remained other than a few of Philip II's daughters, Alexander the Great's half-sisters. This included Cassander's wife, Thessalonike, who did have children with him who would rule, but as heirs to Cassander and part of his dynasty, not Philip. The other one that was still alive that we know of was Cleopatra, Alexander's only full sibling. If you recall... She was promised to Leonatus before he died in the Hellenic War. She then made her way to Sardis to try to marry one of the Diadochi, before being caught up in a crafty marriage plan by Perdiccas that failed miserably. Around 308 BC, Ptolemy offered to marry her, as he began expanding his territory into the Aegean, and she accepted. But before she could leave Sardis, Antigonus got wind of what was going on and, not surprisingly, had her killed. It seems as if all the Argiads of this time period were stamped out almost exclusively by murder from their supposed protectors. From Philip II and Olympias to Alexander's children, 
Some even believe Alexander died from poisoning, and some ancient sources blamed Antipater's sons, Cassander and Iolus, who happened to be the king's cupbearer. Although these sources were propaganda from people like Polyperchon and Olympias, they could be true. Back to the Diatiki. The peace treaty didn't really lead to all that much peace. It was more of a general acknowledgement that everyone should return to their respective corners and breathe for a minute. So, while Antigonus was busy ravaging Babylon and getting beat by Seleucus, Ptolemy saw an opening. Ptolemy shored up his holdings in the eastern Mediterranean, including Cyprus and Kos, a large island just north past the neutral roads, and was in a good location at the southern end of the Aegean. Ptolemy also took some territory from Antigonus in southern Anatolia, which is when he had approached Cleopatra about marriage. He then gathered his forces and sailed to Corinth, on the isthmus that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula with the rest of Greece, to try his luck there. Cassander was still too weak to do much to stop him, and his new ally Polyperchon was tied up in central Greece. Cratesipolis, the widow of Polyperchon's son, who controlled Corinth and Sicyon, surrendered to Ptolemy, and there weren't really any Macedonian garrisons to defend the rest of the region. But the city-states were content with their current situation, and Ptolemy's offer to recreate one of the many subordinate leagues and confederations of Greek cities that had existed in various forms since Philip II wasn't very well received. He would have to fight his way through the peninsula if he wanted it, and an uprising in Cyrenaica made him pull back. He left a garrison in Corinth, but came to terms with Cassander and made his way back home. Ptolemy wasn't the only one interested in Greece, and in 307, Antigonus sent a large force, led by his son Demetrius, to take Athens. They did, as usual, offering to replace the oligarchy put in place by Cassander with a democracy. One loyal to the Antigonids, of course. Demetrius ended up treating Athens as his base of operations, garrisoning Piraeus, and restarting the Athenian shipbuilding industry. He had troops and ships and was getting ready to take the war to the rest of Greece when Antigonus recalled him. Dad had something more important in mind, kicking Ptolemy out of Cyprus. Demetrius led the attack on the island in 306 BC. Ptolemy came up and brought more men and a naval force to fight back, but after a defeat at sea, Ptolemy couldn't bring his ground forces to bear and he retreated back to Egypt. Cyprus was lost and went over to Antigonus, as did a significant number of Ptolemy's troops. Antigonus didn't have the east anymore thanks to Seleucus, but he still had much of the treasury, most of the important cities, the troops, and he had Demetrius, who led a brilliant campaign in Cyprus. The balance of power was changing again, with Ptolemy shrinking back to Egypt and Antigonus expanding westward into the Mediterranean, and slowly from Athens towards the rest of Greece and Macedon. Something else changed, too. Old Antigonus, always shrewd and calculating, waited for this victory in Cyprus to proclaim himself king. He was the first of the Diatiki to make that official declaration, even though they had all been ruling as such for a while at this point. But Antigonus probably didn't do this for himself, Rather, he did it for his son, Demetrius, who he declared a joint king. Antigonus, always power-hungry, but not seemingly one for pretense, 
might not have cared much about the title, but he wanted the empire to be in his family with his dynasty. Doing it after Demetrius's big triumph assured that his crowning alongside his father's would go unchallenged. Later, in 306, Antigonus launched an even bigger invasion, one that could really tip the scales in his favor. He gathered close to 100,000 men to march down to Egypt. Easily defended thanks to the Nile, if Antigonus could take Egypt, it would be difficult for anyone to take it from him for quite a while. From there, he could then concentrate on Europe or turn eastward to recover the rest of the empire. Demetrius sailed along the coast following his father's army, but once he passed Gaza, he couldn't find any safe harbors or good weather. They lost many ships, and he wasn't able to do what was intended, sail west past the Nile and completely outflank Ptolemy. Ptolemy, with his own formidable navy, occupied landing sites and generally kept the invading navy useless. With difficulty feeding the massive army and desertions thanks in some part to Ptolemy paying off soldiers, Antigonus decided to withdraw and he marched back to Syria. The invasion was a failure, although he didn't lose many men outside of his navy. Antigonus was far from done, though. He wanted to regroup and reinvade Egypt after he took care of Rhodes. The island of Rhodes was a nuisance to him. Despite being located right off the Anatolian coast, they didn't support his invasion of Cyprus. They claimed neutrality in these wars and had done a pretty good job of staying out of them. But Rhodes was filled with maritime traders, shipping grain from Egypt to Greece, and therefore, in Antigonus's mind, they were Ptolemy's allies. It didn't help their case that they shipped grain from Egypt even during the invasion. This blockade running did not make him very happy. In 305, before another planned invasion of Egypt, he sent Demetrius to invade Rhodes in order to get them out of the way. But instead of a few weeks, they held out for over a year. The other Diatoki helped them resist Antigonus, Ptolemy especially, with more blockade running. As the siege wore on, Ptolemy used the time to rebuild his own forces. Demetrius was never able to fully blockade the island and eventually moved into a land-based siege. It was a long slog of a campaign with plenty of successes for Rhodes. By 304, he hadn't taken the city, but thought it was in reach when Antigonus recalled him again. It was just taking too much time, money, and men, and the whole point of it was to help them invade Egypt. Ptolemy may have sent, or was beginning to send, a full relief force at the time as well. All it had done was distracted them from the goal of taking Egypt and gave Ptolemy time to rebuild and better prepare. Demetrius, however, earned a nickname, the Besieger, for all of the innovative and effective siege works he had put up. As a celebration for their victory, the people of Rhodes began planning the construction of a statue of their patron god, Helios. It would be finished in 280 BC and is known today as the Colossus of Rhodes. That year, Cassander had recovered enough and gathered enough troops to try to force Antigonus out of Athens. He began a siege that was looking somewhat effective until Demetrius returned. 
Once he got back to Greece, Cassander gave up the siege and headed back to Macedon. The next year, in 303, Demetrius pushed Ptolemy out of Greece by taking Sicyon and Corinth, despite reinforcement of Corinth by Cassander. He marched through the Peloponnese and gained control of all of southern Greece. Antigonus did not recall his son from Greece this time. Instead, they took aim at Cassander, who always seemed to be the one on the verge of collapse. He sued for peace, but they would hear nothing but unconditional surrender. So, Cassander played upon the fear that Antigonus and his son would take Macedon and then move on to the rest of the Hellenistic world, and enlisted the help of the other Diadochi. Of course Ptolemy wanted to help take down Antigonus, but the often uninvolved Lysimachus was brought in as well to help defeat him. Lysimachus was considered a general of great ability, and finally was able to pay attention to the war over Alexander's empire, as Thrace was relatively quiet for the first time in forever. He was given supreme command of the Allied forces, and was promised Antigonus's territory in Anatolia as a reward. Seleucus also offered to help. He had taken Bactria already, and, after withdrawing from a conflict in the Indus Valley, negotiating some sort of truce, and ceding the territory to Chandragupta Maurya in exchange for some war elephants, came back west. Cassander and Demetrius remained around Thessaly, in between Macedon and the rest of Greece, eyeballing each other but not engaging, while Lysimachus led his forces into Anatolia in the middle of 302 BC. Antigonus, despite having quite a bit to do with the current state of affairs, wasn't really that interested in fighting. He may have figured Demetrius would start the fight in Thessaly before anything happened in Asia. He was like 80 years old and retired from generaling at this point, but what was he going to do, surrender in his moment of triumph? Instead, he made his way up from his capital in Syria to go defend his territory. Lysimachus, though, didn't want to engage Antigonus's massive force until reinforcements arrived. He made some alliances in Anatolia and got a few more troops, but Antigonus once again told Demetrius to give up invading Macedon for now and help Daddy beat up the neighbors. As Demetrius left Europe, Cassander retook territory and then sent reinforcements to Lysimachus. Demetrius landed in western Anatolia, retook the central coastal city of Ephesus, and marched north toward the Hellespont. Cassander's reinforcements tried to enter Asia, but with Demetrius guarding the Hellespont, they had to sail. The weather was bad, and Demetrius did his best to stop them, so only about a third made it over. The allies were waiting on Ptolemy and Seleucus, but Ptolemy had not made it far before news reached him that Antigonus had defeated Lysimachus and was coming for him next. He retreated to once again secure Egypt, but the rumors were not true. It may have been a very sly move by Antigonus to get Ptolemy out of the war. He also actually attacked Babylon, for real, in an effort to distract Seleucus, but this didn't work. Seleucus ignored the invading force and arrived in Cappadocia in time to take winter quarters there at the end of 302 BC. As 301 BC started, a massive collection of forces moved towards each other. Antigonus and Demetrius might have had 80,000 troops, 
while Lysimachus, Cassander, and Seleucus might have had a bit less, although they had more elephants thanks to Seleucus. The two armies met at a place called Ipsus in Phrygia, central Anatolia. In typical fashion, they had their Macedonian phalanxes deployed facing each other in the center. Their flanks were protected by the lighter infantry, some Greek hoplites, and the spear-tossing skirmishers. Of course, as always, the heavy cavalry was also there to help protect the flanks of the infantry. As the elephant forces engaged each other to start, Demetrius led a push with his companion cavalry, routing whoever he fought, possibly a group of cavalry led by Seleucus's son Antiochus. He chased them off the field behind the rest of the forces. As the phalanx is engaged, Demetrius should have returned to smash into the back of the allied phalanx. But the majority of Seleucus's elephants were not actually deployed in the initial fight. Instead, they waited at the back of the allied lines. There, they were able to block Demetrius's return to the field, keeping him from completing the hammer and anvil tactic with Antigonus's phalanx. Since Demetrius didn't smash into the back of Lysimachus's allied phalanx, they had the advantage now, as they had the protected flanks. Antigonus's flank was unprotected, because that was the cavalry's job when they weren't trying to outflank the phalanx. As Seleucus threatened their right flank, and the entire allied infantry smashed into them, Antigonus's phalanx began to flee or surrender. A group in the center, led by Antigonus, eventually got surrounded enough that the one-eyed long-time commander was in range of the skirmishers, and he was killed by a spear. Demetrius was not able to return in time to help, and he fled the field, taking a force of nearly 10,000 with him. He made for Ephesus and immediately sailed to his old capital, Athens. He still had a few holdings, although Antigonus's empire was gone, swallowed up by Seleucus and Lysimachus. Robin Waterfield, in his book Dividing the Spoils, said of Antigonus Monophthalmus, quote, So died one of the most determined, successful, and gifted of the successors. At the age of 60, circumstances had given him the opportunity for imperial rule. He had seized it eagerly and had exercised vast power for 20 years. End quote. Antigonus's death ended any chance at a united empire. Despite being left behind by Alexander to guard the supply lines in Cappadocia, he was, from the death of Perdiccas to the Battle of Ipsus, the most powerful of all the Diatici. Only two of our almost forgotten main characters remain, Seleucus and Ptolemy. In our next and final episode of the Diatici, we'll take a look at how these two fared after the Battle of Ipsus, and we'll see how the other rivals for the successor empires including Lysimachus, Cassander, and Demetrius, fared as well. Beyond that, we'll look a bit down the road to see the demise of these successor states. Thanks again for listening. 